Hebrews chapter number two in your Bibles, a great portion of God's word when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ and all that that is wrapped up in his reality and who he is. I was um, here's a, a picture of a uh, of a home in North Carolina, in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, family there, James Faison and his wife decorated their yard in North in Raleigh uh, for Christmas, and uh, they chose this year uh, a six-foot-tall cross decorated with lights and red ribbon and as their part of their Christmas decorations of their home. And uh, as a surprise to them, they received a, a, a notice from the Homeowners Association uh, that uh, told them that their cross was a violation of the Homeowners Association policy because it was not a symbol that had any connection with Christmas. And uh, he was kind of surprised by that. I thought maybe we should send them this morning's service so that they could realize the cross has a lot to do with Christmas. But uh, they, they uh, questioned the Homeowners Association, sent a, a written response uh, uh, asking the Homeowners Association what they mean. What, what do you mean the cross has nothing to do with Christmas? And the Homeowners Association replied to them, and I quote, they said, I did share your response with the board and several members of the board are devout Christians and are intimately familiar with the cross being the foundation for which Christianity is based. The cross represents the death of Jesus Christ who died for our sins that we can have eternal life. The Christmas season is associated with the birth of the Savior, such as nativity scenes, uh, would be appropriate as a representation of the, the season. The board believes that the Bible is very clear on the distinction between these two major events in Christ's life on earth. The cross is appropriate for display during the Easter season, but it is not to be used as a decoration during the Christmas season. Unless biblical references can be provided, noting the cross as a symbol of the Christmas season for the board to reconsider, the cross is not considered to be a Christmas decoration. So they were asked to remove the cross. Uh, they promptly paid the $100 fee, fine, rather, and left the cross up for the Christmas season. Well, it's kind of hard to, to divorce the manger in Bethlehem from the cross in Jerusalem. The cross is very intimately related uh, to the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, can you say purpose? Can you say reason? Uh, there is a reason why Jesus Christ was born, and he was born with a purpose. And that purpose was fulfilled on the cross of Calvary. Hebrews is a great portion of God's word to give consideration to the person of Jesus Christ, and why he was born of a virgin. The virgin birth is all wrapped up in the reality of who Jesus is. And, of course, you can't separate the virgin birth from the reality of who he is and why he became virgin born. He became virgin born that God might become man, that God might represent man, that God might go to the cross and bear this the uh, the judgment of man so that man could be forgiven. It's pretty tough to separate the cross from Christmas. Well, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the first century who were struggling with who Jesus Christ is. The book of Hebrews in the first chapter 
goes to uh, significant lengths to show that Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament preachers, and he's even better than the angels. And the thought of Jesus Christ being better than the angels kind of uh, grabbed hold of the, the narrative of the first two chapters of Hebrews. And we have something to do with Jesus Christ and the angels as being significant in the birth of Jesus Christ. I'm going to jump into the context. This, what I want to share with you uh, is in the latter half of chapter 2. Uh, but really, this deserves a, multi, uh, a multi-message series at Christmas time on the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we live in a world that does not know who Jesus Christ is. We live in a culture where young people are brought up without ever seeing a Bible, ever touching a Bible, ever reading a Bible. Uh, educated people today in America oftentimes know very little about Jesus Christ and what is contained in the Bible, about this story about Jesus Christ. And so Christmas is a, a, a great time of the year every year to pause and to think about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. And uh, every Christmas, as you're well aware, we spend at least one service focusing on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, why the virgin birth is important, why it's a non-negotiable, why without the virgin birth we don't have anything else regarding Jesus Christ that is true and, and, and important to us. And so this evening we want to focus on this concept of the virgin birth and the reality that Jesus Christ was born to die. The purpose of the virgin birth is Calvary. The purpose of the virgin birth is the cross of Calvary. And uh, we learn something of that from Hebrews chapter number 2. I want to jump in at verse number 9. He has explained the angels. And by the way, he even, let me go back to verse 6 just for a moment. He he spoke of of, uh, the angels and man. And he said, but one in a certain place testified, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou, art, that thou visitest him, thou made him a little lower than the angels and crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all subjection under him. He hath left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not all things put under him. That is a reference back to the creation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and how that God made man a little lower than the angels. And yet God put everything in submission, in subjection to Adam and Eve. And God exalted Adam and Eve and crowned them with honor and glory to lead and to have dominion over all that God created. And that includes the angels. The Bible tells us in the New Testament in a number of places that man will one day rule over the angels. The book of Revelation brings us to understand that the day is going to come when we're going to rule over the angels. God made man a little lower than the angels, but then exalted man and crowned him with dominion over the angels. And yet, as we're told here at the end of verse number 8, we do not now see all things Put under man because of the fall. Satan usurped his, as an, as an angel, Satan as an angel usurped his position and he gained the control over man and over that which God had put under man. And so that we know that in the fallen creation, Satan, as the Bible says, is the little g, God of this world. 
And Satan usurped the position that God created man to be in, took control over the created world. And so now we don't see everything put under the submission of humanity. We're not ruling our world. We live in many ways in fear of our world. Storms and forest fires and earthquakes and devastation. We live at the mercy of our world in many ways. We're not ruling the angels, even though we were given the authority over angels. So God made man a little lower than the angels, but he put the angels and all of the created world under submission to man. And then man fell into sin and Satan took control over all that which had been put under man. But verse number nine, verse number nine says, but we see Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. But we see Jesus, who was a little lower than the angels. Jesus Christ was made lower than the angels. Why was Jesus Christ made lower than the angels? For the suffering of death. Angels don't die. Angels don't die. When Jesus Christ became human, He's going to die. Because humans die. We see Jesus made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus Christ was made lower than the angels, will suffer death which angels will never suffer. And Jesus Christ was made lower than the angels for that purpose. He was born in Bethlehem's manger for the purpose of suffering death for every man. Verse number 10 says, for it became him. Now, if you you connect that to the word two, about four lines down in your Bible, for it became him to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who is this captain of their salvation? Verse 10 says it's for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory. Jesus Christ is the one that everything revolves around. The one who made everything by whom are all things. And it, and it pleased God the Father. It became Him to make the captain of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. It became God the Father. It was appropriate for God the Father. It was the right thing for God the Father to do to make Jesus Christ perfect through suffering. He's called here the, the captain of their salvation. It's an interesting word, this word captain. It's used in a variety of, of ways, but it always has one, one seed of thought that runs through it. It's used of a, of a man who starts a family to which others are born. It's used of a man who establishes a city to which other people move and live. And it was used of a pioneer who blazed a trail on which others will follow him and walk on. In every case, it's related to the ones that will follow. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation, the pioneer of our salvation, the one who made our salvation possible with the view and purpose that others will join in and follow him. 
That's what he's talking about here in verse number nine and ten to make many sons, to bring many sons into glory. This whole plan, the master plan of God the Father, to make Jesus Christ the the spearhead, the pioneer, the one that will make this path of salvation in order that many will be brought to glory through what Jesus Christ would do for us. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, I want you to think with me for a few moments about what we gain by this virgin-born God-man that became human for the purpose of representing man to the cross and dying on the cross for us that we might be brought into glory, sons, many sons brought into glory because the, the, uh, the whole position of Jesus Christ as the one who was made lower than the angels for a time for the purpose of suffering death is related to the to God becoming human, which is what the virgin birth is all about. He's not just another man. He's not just another human being who stands and lives and dies on his own. He's God incarnate in human flesh in order to produce a salvation to which many sons can be brought into for glory. Now, what is it that Jesus Christ accomplished as the virgin-born Son of God? Now, once you see these four accomplishments of Jesus Christ, uh, these are uh, the, um, the kind of things that can, can spur on family conversations and, and reading and talking about uh, how, this, how this fleshes out in your experience, in your life, in, in your testimony. And I want you to see these four accomplishments of Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God who came to die, born to die. We're going to jump down to verse number 14, and I want you to see the first thing that Jesus Christ did as a result of becoming man is that he destroyed Satan. Verse number 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So just like you and I are human, we have flesh and blood, Jesus Christ had to enter humanity. He had to take flesh and blood upon himself. Why? He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. God became man and identified himself with man in Bethlehem because God had a master plan. And that was to defeat Satan at the point of his greatest strength. What did Satan gain in the Garden of Eden? What what did he bring into reality in the Garden of Eden? The Bible says that before the Garden of Eden there was no death. The thing that Satan brought into the experience of God's created universe is Satan brought in death. God said, the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There was no death prior to sin. Satan's great accomplishment was bringing death into the the creation that God had, had made. And it is through death that Satan gains the victory over God. All those whom Satan will rule over in hell will be those who died. That's his victory. That's his strength. His greatest strength is death. And that's how he conquered Adam and Eve. That's how he conquers every human being that dies in their sin. In the Garden of Eden, 
God declared that the penalty of rebellion was death, and so Satan masterminded his own rebellion and that of Adam and Eve so that he could become the little g God of all God's creation. His aim was to overthrow everything that God had created right and good. And his most powerful weapon is death. And so Jesus had to become man because Jesus can't die as God. God doesn't die. Jesus can't even become an angel because angels don't die. Jesus had to become human. He had to, God had to be born into humanity in order that he could attack Satan at the point of Satan's greatest strength, at the point of death. So verse 14 said he himself He himself likewise took part of the same, took part of humanity, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, even the devil. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where the Bible says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The the, the enemy, the fight between the, the woman and between Satan that started in the Garden of Eden and God told Satan, that he would put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Not between his seed and Adam's seed. Not between Satan's seed and Adam's generations. But between his seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt, uh, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There will be the Satan's attack on Jesus Christ when Jesus dies on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus dies. And Satan inflicts upon Jesus Christ a blow that takes his life. But in reality, it was Jesus Christ giving up his life in order to destroy Satan at the point of his greatest strength. And he crushed the head of Satan on the cross of Calvary. Why did Jesus have to be, why did God have to become man in order to die? Because death is the strength of Satan. God had to become man that Jesus Christ could represent man against Satan at the point of Satan's strength. Jesus met Satan on his own turf. He met the master of death in death. And the cross dealt The devil, his demise from the place of his own greatest advantage. Jesus became man to die. Because that was the place where he could destroy Satan at Satan's greatest strength. I want you to see a second accomplishment of the cross. Verse number 15, the the narrative goes on and says, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's an interesting statement. We fear death. We as humanity, human beings, we fear death. It's our greatest bondage throughout our life, the fear of death. The Bible says here that, that this is a fear that we have to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject To bondage. We're enslaved to a fear of dying. And so people exercise because they don't want to die. They eat properly because they don't want to die. They go to the doctor because they don't want to die. They take medicine because they don't want to die. 
They fear. We fear death. The Bible says we're in bondage to death. Humanity, mankind, in bondage to death. What did Jesus Christ accomplish on, the Cal- on Calvary? Why did he die? He died to deliver us from the fear of death. And that's why Paul could cry out in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is the sting that you have kept mankind in slavery all their existence in fear of dying? Where is the sting of death? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Mankind for thousands, six thousand years now have gone to graves and laid their loved ones, their bodies, their lifeless bodies in a grave. And, and finally, death had conquered their loved one and and their fear of death uh, finally brought them to the point of death. And they stood there at the grave, and the grave had the victory. But then Jesus came. But we see Jesus. Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, because angels don't die. God doesn't die. Angels don't die. He became lower than the angels. He became human through the miracle of virgin birth. God became human to die. Because in death, He could conquer Satan. And in death, He could deliver us from the fear of death. Why did Jesus Christ's death deliver us from the fear of death? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. (laughs) He came back out of that grave on the third day. He didn't stay dead. And so, where is the sting of death? It's gone. Where is the victory of the grave? It's gone. Why is it gone? Because we see Jesus made a little lower than the angel so God could die. In place of the humanity he had to become So that he could meet Satan at his greatest strength. The strength of death by which Satan dooms souls to eternity under his domain. In hell. Forever. Dead. Jesus Christ became human to die. So that he could deliver us from. He could defeat and destroy Satan and then deliver us from Satan's power. Jesus Christ kept the law in my place. He paid the price for my sin. I'm set free. And that's why Paul declared to the church at Philippi, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not afraid to die, Paul said. I have no fear of death, Paul said. Death is my coronation day. Death is the greatest day of my life. Death is the day on which I will live like I've never lived before. Death is my victory. Oh, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I, if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. The, the, the work amongst the people that Paul was laboring to work amongst. Yet what I shall choose, he says, I want not. I'm in a straight betwixt two. I want to die. But you need me to live. And I'm in a straight betwixt two. I don't want to live. I want to die because it's in death that I really live. But I'm conscious of the fact that God needs me on earth, Paul said. You need me in Philippi. Cities that I've not yet gone to preach the gospel and plant churches need me. I'm wrestling. I want to die. But I need to live. For the sake of unsaved people and 
young believers. I'm in a strait betwixt two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So he went on to say, I, I know I'm going to live. Because duty should always capitalize desire in every part of our lives. I desire to die and be with Christ. But duty calls me to stay and preach the gospel and plant churches. I desire what's best for me. But I have a duty to do what's best for you. And duty should never bow to desire in our lives in any area. We all have to conquer our desires to do what we ought to do. And do what is right, not for our sakes, but for the sake of others. Why did Jesus die? He died to deliver us from this bondage. Are you afraid to die? Our world's afraid to die. Our country's afraid to die. People are living in the fear of death every day. They're, they're paranoid over COVID. They're, they're afraid they're going to die. And Jesus Christ became human in Bethlehem, born to die, because in dying, he would deliver humanity from the fear of dying. In his death, he delivers me from the fear of death so that I don't have to be afraid to die. If I die today, I will live like I've never lived before. If I died today, I would be in the greatest state that I've ever been in in my existence in these 67 years. Death is my friend. Death is my coronation. It's my entrance into everything I was created for. Death is my greatest friend. I have no reason to be afraid to die and to fear death and to be paranoid. People, our, our country is paranoid over death because they don't know the deliverer who delivers from the fear of death. And unfortunately, sometimes we as Christian people become so worldly in our thinking, so earthly in our enjoyments. It's as if everything is on earth. And if I were to leave earth, I would have nothing. And so people fight to stay on earth. I've teased my mom for years. I said, Mom, now mom's never taken much of medication. She doesn't take, I don't know if she takes any medication. She might take one or two now, I don't know. But she always takes all these pills. I said, Mom, why are you taking all those pills? They're all vitamins, you know. So why are you taking all those, those vitamins and stuff? Yeah, I, don't you want to die and go be with Dad and see Jesus? And, and, and why are you trying to stay here? She said, I do want to go on, but I want to feel good here until I go on. <laughs> Are you afraid to die? Oh, dear believer in Christ. The fear of death is the emblem of the unsaved state. The bondage to the fear of dying is the greatest picture of an unsaved person. To be set free from the fear of death is the greatest picture of a believer in Jesus Christ. He was, he 
became lower than the angels in order to die. And in death, he destroyed Satan at his greatest strength. And then he delivered me from the bondage of being afraid to die. Let me show you a third accomplishment. Verse number 11. This, I don't have to deal much with this because, because Pastor Ryan dealt with it all morning this morning. It was great. And uh, in verse number 11, I want you to see that the third, the third accomplishment of the cross is to bring us into the most amazing family. Verse 11. Both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. God is holy and those whom God makes holy are one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I've never, I've not personally checked this out on my own. But I heard a preacher recently make the statement that he has combed the Gospels. And Jesus Christ never called his disciples brethren until after the resurrection. He called them disciples. He called them followers. He called them all kinds of things. But he never called them brethren until after the resurrection. This is a quote from the 22nd Psalm. A psalm about Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and then the great resurrection whereby he was made to live. And then immediately Jesus Christ said, I will, I will tell the family about you, God, Father, and I will call them my brothers, my brethren. And this is quoting that passage from Psalm 22. The Bible says, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and here's the quote from Psalm 22, I will declare thy name, God the Father, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Wow. Jesus went to the cross as the captain of our salvation, the trailblazer, the pioneer, so that others will join in and follow him into the most amazing family that's ever existed, whereby I am the brother of Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm not even ashamed to call you my brother. You know, that's not a given in human relationships. If you've raised some kids, you know, there are times in life where they don't want to be known as the brother or that's my brother. My wife had an older brother that was older than her by a few years. And they went to the same school and he was in his last year of the school. And she was just coming in as a as the youngest class into that particular school. And so her brother didn't want anyone to know that that was his sister. He was ashamed of his sister. And he didn't want anyone to know, that's my sister. She's just that little kid. And so she would find him in class, a door that would have a window on it, or the door would be open, and he would be in class with all of his school buddies, and she would stand in the hallway outside the door waving at him. She used to love to embarrass him, letting others know that she was his sister. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is never embarrassed of you? He is not ashamed to call you my brother. 
He became human to die so that he could become the brother. God becoming the brother of every human being that comes into this wonderful family through the grace of God accomplished on the cross of Calvary. He, he brought me into the most amazing family. He became human so that he could experience humanity and link up with human beings and understand our plight and understand the struggles we're in, the common experiences, the common background, all that we might be brethren that he would not be ashamed of. I, I've got two brothers. I am so proud of my brothers. My older brother is a deacon in a church down in South Carolina. and He's given his life for the last, I don't know how many years, 30 years, he's given his life to that church for many years as a layman in the church. He would show up and at like six in the morning, it was a big church, kind of a, a, a big multi-thousand uh, person church. And he would go in there and, and set up adult Sunday school rooms all over the buildings and plug in coffee pots and move coffee and donuts to different parts of the building and get everything ready. He gave hours and hours. Sunday he worked pretty well from early morning to, to the end of the day. He would be mostly at church all day long serving the church that he loved, that he loves. I'm proud of my brother. I'm glad that's what he loves. You know, there's a lot of things you can give your life for. There's a lot of things you can spend your time on. I'm proud of my brother who loves and gives his life for the church that he's a member of. My younger brother is one of the pastors up at Valley Forge, one of the greatest guys that I know in this world, so one of the smartest men that I know. His various strengths are just uh, from one extreme to the other. And, and I am just so proud of my brother. I'm proud of my brothers. Do you know Jesus Christ is proud of you? He became human in order to understand you, to be you, to feel like you, to experience humanity so that he could bring you into his family and not be ashamed of you as his brother. And he even declares God's name to us and says, God's your dad. God's your father. I will declare, thy, Jesus said to God, I will declare thy name to my brethren. And when we come to church together, we're going to sing praise to you, Father. And Jesus established this most, most amazing family that we're part of if we've been born again. Oh, this is why Jesus had to become human, lower than the angels, because he was born to die. It was only in death that he could destroy Satan and deliver us from the fear of dying and bring us into this most amazing family. You see five little blanks there. Let me just point out to you, this is the family characteristic. You know, you want to know what your family's like? Every family, you know, you could write down a list of things, you know. My fam- this is what my family's like. And you could write down a bunch of th- stuff about your family and identify your family. This is, this is God in His eternal Word describing the characteristics of His family that I'm a part of. Jesus Christ is not ashamed of me as a part of the family. What are they like? Number, the first one, number one, is it's a holy family. In verse number 11, the Bible says God is holy and so He made us holy. God is sanctified so that He made, so He sanctified us. 
Why? Because he wanted to bring us into his family. He wants us to bear the likeness, the image of his family. He wants us to be like his family. And the very first characteristic he mentions of his family is that his family is a holy family. Romans 8.20 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. He saved us to be like Jesus Christ, our elder brother. That we could follow our elder brother, become like our elder brother, be conformed in the image of our elder brother. And then a couple of chapters later in Romans 12.1 and 2, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oh, the number one characteristic of God's family is it's a family of holiness. The second thing he mentions is acceptance. Acceptance. He said, I'm not ashamed of you. I accept you the way you are. Someone said, God loves us too much. Let's see, how did that go? It sounded good in my brain before I started saying it. God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. That's the second half of it. I can't remember the first half of it. He loved me enough to save me. And He loves me enough to change me into His image. That I might be like Him because He is accepting me into the family. And making me like him. Acceptance. Not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse number 12. He said, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Learning. One of the greatest characteristics of God's family is we never stop learning. We never learn enough. We want to know more about our God. We want to know more about the family. And Jesus said, I make a commitment. I will declare God's name unto my brethren. So what do we do? We learn the names of God. Right now it's. It's El Gabor, I believe it is, on this week's prayer sheet we're asking you to meditate on. El Gabor, the mighty God of strength. I never stop learning about my God. Because that's the characteristic of the family. Verse 12 goes on to say, we sing praise unto Him. God's family is a family of praise where we're always giving glory to the Father. And verse number 13, he said, and again I will put my trust in Him. Behold... I and the brethren and, and the children, rather, which God has given me, I will put my trust in him. It's a family of confidence. Jesus trusts the father and teaches us to trust the father as well. That's what the family of God is all about. Let me show you the last one and we'll close. The fourth accomplishment comes all the way down to verse 17 and 18. The final accomplishment of the cross Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Eternal God had to become lower than the angels so that he could die. He had to become human. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In all things pertaining to God and to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. For in that he hath himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He went to the cross in order to provide us with a sympathetic helper. Sympathetic. He went through everything we go through so that he knows how we feel. And only then is he able to come and succor. It's an old English word that means come to help. To come to our side to help us. He sits by our side when we're hurting, when we're crying. He sits by our side and holds our hand when, when everything has gone wrong. And he says, I know how you 
feel. I've been there. Done that. I have suffered what you're suffering. I have experienced what you're experiencing. And He is able to come and help me when I am dealing with the problems and trials of my life. He shared human experience so that He could comfort us. What a God. What a Savior that became human so that we could have one who would destroy Satan, deliver us, make us a part of his amazing family, and hold us by the hand and say, I know how you feel. I felt it. And you can make it. You can go through it and succeed. What a God whom we have. We would say that the virgin birth which is the mechanism whereby God became human who had one purpose, and that one purpose was God needed to die. To be able to deal with what Satan brought into his creation. And oh, we enjoy. Because God was virgin born and became human. 